Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Oak City Church. Glad you're here. This is the end of a series in the book of Acts. Um, it's the last message, and it's a, there's a, this, is a, this is an epic. Chapter 27 is kind of an epic story. So I'm going to read through this story. I'm not going to have you stand. And what we've been standing and just honoring that this is God's word and acknowledging that his words mean more than my words or your words, and we're grateful for his words, um, but not, but, and we are grateful enough to stand for 15 minutes, but I'm not going to make you do that. So this is the word of the Lord that I'm about to read. There you go. Okay, Acts chapter 27, verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us, and we'd sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia and came to Myra in Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So here's what's happened. The last two weeks in this, you can go back. Don't, Don't do that just yet. Here's what happened the last two weeks. Um, Paul was in, like, Greece and Asia, and God said, you're going to have to go back to Jerusalem, and bad things will happen, but you got to do that. So following Jesus is hard, follow him anyway, worship's key to that. That was two weeks ago. Last week, he gets arrested, he has a couple trials, he ends up before um, Festus, who is uh, like a Roman governor in Agrippa, the king of Egypt, speaking truth to power, and there was a lot to learn from that. And now the, the Romans have to get him from Caesarea to Rome, and I guess he can't put the map up now. And so this is just to give you some perspective on, like, he has to get from way over there on the right with the green to way up there in the upper left in the purple. Um, and and uh, there's a, a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius that's going to do that. And Julius is probably like a major or a colonel in the Roman army. He's kind of an important guy. And he's got to get these prisoners from Caesarea to Rome um, and so it's a little bit like Con Air, but if they had to take public transportation. Like Con Air, if they were flying Delta through JFK, because he's just going to find some boats that are headed towards Rome and, and get there, you know? And so it's about this journey, and it's real technical, nautical language. I read one commentary that's like, you got to know something about the sea to write it this way, and you had to be on the boat to get what was going on. So when they say under the lee of Cyprus, that means like the, the non-weathered side of Cyprus. Whichever side the weather was coming from, they're on the other side. So last year, we took our family to, um, to Puerto Rico for vacation. It's COVID. It's still America, kind of, and so it was easy to get there. And then we went to Calabria because the, the Andersons told us this. Go to this little island, an hour off the island of Puerto Rico. And then Nate's like, go to this Go to this place, park your car, there's nothing there. You're in the middle of nowhere. Go on this trail, just trust me, and walk like half an hour, and you get to this beach on the north side of Calabria, and no one's there. And it's like a quarter-mile beach, like white, beautiful, and it's just us. And then he said, walk down the beach, and there's this rock outcropping about a football field off the island, and swim out there with your boys, and you'll feel like you've just like flown to the moon. You've conquered the world. And so we did. 
And it was awesome. And we went, we went to the rock outcreeping, except for the fact that my kid got bit by a sea urchin. And I was like, I don't know what a sea urchin is. And I hope this isn't bad, because if it's really bad, he's going to die right here on this rock outcropping, because we got to swim across the football field and walk a quarter mile down the beach and a half an hour through the woods, and we're on some island that probably doesn't have a doctor anyway. You know what I mean? And then, we, and then we're facing the full weather of the Atlantic, and so we had to swim back across to the island, and it's the only time in my life I've ever thought, I'm going to drown right now. We were not under the lee of Calabria. We were whatever the opposite of that is. And when you were on the other side of Calabria, super calm, like swam with some sea turtles and manta rays, great. So under the lee, got it? Like nautical term, the calm side of the island. Okay, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of an island I will not try to pronounce. As the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmoni, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, which means the Day of Atonement, which is in the fall, had passed. So now we're getting late in the year, and the weather's getting bad, and Paul knows it. And so Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, respectful, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion Julius paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, fair enough, Paul, as a prisoner, seems to have a vested interest in the ship not arriving at its destination. You know, like, it would make sense that the prisoner is trying to delay uh, the completion of this voyage. The pilot has captained ships his whole life, presumably, and knows what he's talking about. And the owner is the one that pays your bills. I would listen to the pilot and the owner as well. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter and the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, which no one seems to totally understand, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south winds blew gently, supposing they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land, and the ship was caught and could not face the wind, and we gave way to it, and we were just floating along wherever the wind was taking us. In running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat, so the lifeboat must have been trailing behind. They pulled it up. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship because they're worried it's going to fall apart. And then fearing that it would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo and on the third day threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So now we're not in Con Air anymore. If you remember uh, The Perfect Storm with George Clooney, that's where we are. We're like up and down, 50-foot waves, just hoping that we can make it through this thing, and it's going to end. And he says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They're all like, this is it. You ever been there? Like all hope is gone? I'm not on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, like just metaphorically, all hope is gone. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them 
and said, men, you should have listened to me (laughs) and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Paul says, I told you so. Now, this seems like a bad time for an I told you so. (laughs) You ever had someone say I told you so at a time that was really inappropriate? Have you ever said I told you so at a time that was really inappropriate? Has the person sitting next to you ever said I told you so at a time that they didn't know was really inappropriate but was really inappropriate? (laughs) Like there's a way to say I told you so that's like I told you so. Where the person will be like, I know I'm going to die, and if I had listened to you then, I would live, but I still would have done the same thing if you told me then, because I would rather die than listen to a jerk, right? And there's a way to say, I told you so, that's like, you know what, like, I get, I would have listened to the pilot and the owner of the boat too, but I'm just saying, like, this is kind of what I had in mind when I said, I think it'd be best if we had wintered wherever we were. And they've been in this for a few weeks now. And, and how you carry yourself in the storm says a lot to the people around you. And so I'm super confident that Paul carried himself extremely well during the storm, during the moments of stress. When everybody's given up hope, Paul has not. Um, and he's got reason for it. And Paul's traveled a lot um, in his life. And he's a wicked smart guy. And they probably picked that up by now. And so he says, yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This is great. Like, if I'm them, I'm thinking, it's, it just seems unlikely that the angel appeared to the bad guy. Like, he appeared to the prisoner who's in jail and going before the Caesar, but that guy's saying, no, the angel appeared before me and said, I have to get this, I'm going to the White House. I'm going to have lunch with the president. Like, all of it just doesn't seem, you know, likely. Um, But they're desperate, and they've gotten to know him, and the angel appeared to him, and that's happened a couple times to Paul. Like, he's in Corinth at one point, things are going bad, and uh, the angel shows up and says, hey, I've got many people in this city. I'm not done with you here. Don't worry about it. He appeared last week in Jerusalem when he's having all these false trials and says, hey, this looks bad, but I got this because you have to go to Rome and appear before Caesar. And the end of this little line where it says, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That means Paul has prayed for the men on the ship. And we find out in a minute, it's 276 people in total. And Paul has prayed for them and said, God, like, save these people. And so they hear that. I prayed for you, and God said that he's granted that prayer, and you guys will all live. And so he says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. What a leader, and what a man of faith in the midst of that situation to stand up with such confidence and say, it's going to be okay. When the 14th night had come, two weeks of this, as we're being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, and a little further on took a sounding and found 15 fathoms, and then fearing the middle of the night that they'd run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed. They let down their anchors and they prayed for the day to come, like it seems like it's working, you know? 
And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, like they kind of faked it. We're going to let the anchors down, got to put the boat down. But they were really thinking about getting in the boat. Paul said to, this, to Julius, the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. This is counterintuitive. If a ship is sinking, what do you do? Get off the ship, right? Like it's called a lifeboat for a reason. Get in the boat and you get life. And so this is the moment of truth for them. Like how much do they buy what Paul has been selling? And it says, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And they are all in now. (laughs) They've let go of the lifeboat. And I guarantee there are guys on that ship thinking, okay, I've always wondered and now I know this is how I'm going to (laughs) die. You know, this day was about to dawn. Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it'll give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he'd said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, on a boat, that's about to crash on the rocks that's been thrown around in the sea for 14 days, thanking God, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship, and when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat out into the sea. And so they've not just let go of the lifeboat now, they have no food left. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being battered and broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan, and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. It's just an epic story, a great story. And I've got, I've got two things. I'm just going to say them in the next minute here, and then, and then talk about him for a little while. And here's just the main thing. God is going to finish what he started in your life. God is going to finish what he started. Nothing will stop God from accomplishing his purposes in your life. God may not... We may, we, he, he may not be considered what we call efficient, you know, but, but he's going to get the job done. If you put that mat back on, if I'm Paul at some point, so what happened if you follow this map is he was in the yellow part in Macedonia when God said, started to say, hey, you got to get back to Jerusalem and then you're going to get arrested and then you're going to go to Rome. And so he had to go all the way back through Asia and get down to Jerusalem and have bad stuff happen and then float across the sea. If at some point, if I'm Paul, I'm like, hey, if the goal was to get me to Rome, like the purple part is a lot closer to the yellow part than going back to the green part and then going to the purple part. 
And then there's this little Brundisium right under where it says Adriatic Sea. And it looks like Paul would, if I'm Paul, I'd be like, I could just swim across that, you know? Like, we wouldn't have even needed a boat and then just gone to Rome. Like, why didn't we do that? You ever been there with God? He's not efficient, but he's, he's going to get the job done. And maybe for Paul to get before Caesar, you can't just walk into Rome, knock on Caesar's door and say, hey, is he around? Like, he had to get arrested. And he had to appeal to Caesar and had to go through all that stuff. And, and the second thing I'd say is that God is going to do things in the lives of others through you while he's finishing the work that he has to do in you. Right? He's going to work through you while he's finishing what he's doing in you. And so on that whole journey, those disciples from two weeks ago, as he's going to Jerusalem and at every place he stops, everyone's like, don't go to Jerusalem. And Paul's like, I know it's going to be hard but I know God called me to do it, and I know I have to do what God called me to do, even if it's going to be hard. They never forgot that. They tried to persuade him, and they stopped, but they never forgot it. You know, and this shipwreck and the promise that no one will get hurt, I guarantee all 275 of the other people on that ship never stopped telling that story. Like, they told their grandkids, there is this time, man, we're floating around the Mediterranean. Worst storm I've ever been in. We're there for two weeks. There's this one guy that's like, yeah, God appeared to me. An angel appeared to me in the middle of it, said, we're all going to be okay. We cut the lifeboat away and crashed on the rocks, and every single one of us lived. They told that story for the rest of their lives, right? He's going to, while he's finishing his work in you, he's going to work through you in ways that we'll never find out about. The next story and you should read your Bible. The next story is great. The, the island that they crash on is Malta. And so it says the natives of Malta see this ship crashing in these guys. And they're like, you guys look rough, you know. Let's make you some food. And so they get a fire going. And Paul's gathering some firewood. And um, he puts it on the fire. And a snake jumps out of his firewood and, like, latches onto him. We have a little wood pile around the side of our house. Every time I get wood off it, I think there's a snake in there someplace, you know. And, uh, and so the prisoners look at this, and you know in basketball there's a saying, ball don't lie. You know, if there's a bad foul, they get a free throw, they miss, you're like, ball don't lie. That wasn't really foul. Well, they're like, ball don't lie, that snake is justice. And you think you got away with it, Paul, but you didn't. They don't know anything about him. They just think this is God's justice on him. Well, he shakes the snake off into the fire. They know what kind of snake it is, so they watch him because he's going to die in a few minutes. And then he doesn't die and doesn't swell up and nothing happens. They're like, you're a god. <laughs> and they start, and Paul's like, I'm neither. But then they bring like the leader of their tribe whose father is sick, and they bring him to Paul, and Paul heals him. And then everyone on the island of Malta that's sick comes to Paul and he heals every one of them. They never stop talking about that guy, you know? Like God's doing all that at the same time. I was finishing the book of Joshua a couple weeks ago in the Bible reading plan. And Joshua is a little bit of a tough book anyway. They're taking over the promised land. There's some hard stories in there. You get to the end of it. And it's about God giving the 12 tribes of Israel the promised land. At the end, it's like, and so this tribe got this land from this rock to this tree to this river to this city. And it's over and over and over again. And I'm like, God, no one knows where that rock or that tree or that the river is called something different. That city hasn't been there for 2,000 years. I like looked it up on the internet to try and figure out what he was talking about. The internet doesn't even know. And so I'm like, God, why is this in here? And why am I reading this? And why are you wasting my time? I have things to do, God. 
And then right at the end of Joshua, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all of their enemies into their hand. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. Every single one of them came to pass. And God said it to me that morning, just like that. I was like, okay, I got it. Like, that's why it's in there. Nothing will keep him from finishing what he started. You are in the middle of a story. There's always tension in the middle of a story. That's why stories are good. He knows exactly how it ends. When I was on sabbatical, um, we did a bunch of puzzles uh, I like doing puzzles. Normally we don't do them unless it's like Christmas vacation. You got some time. Um, but I just like them. They focus your concentration. You get to spend time with the people that you're doing them with, but you don't have to like do a lot. You know, you're just kind of doing a puzzle. Um, it's hard to do a puzzle if you don't have a picture, you know? And it's hard, like some of the puzzles have the box and then they've got to fold that picture and so if I'm like, but most of the time it was Abigail, and then we can each have a picture, but if only one of us has a picture, then I'm like, can I have the picture? And she's like, no, I need the picture. I think life sometimes is like putting a puzzle together, and God's got the picture, but he's not sharing the box with you. And you're like, oh, it would be really helpful if I had the picture. And God's like, nah, I got the picture. You don't need it. And he just kind of throws you a few pieces at a time and says, put together this part of the picture. You can figure that out. Like, it gives us help, but he's got the rest of the picture. But that can be, um, that's a challenge. My mind went to um, Hebrews 11, which is um, a chapter of the Bible that, you know, sometimes we call the, the hall of faith. And so like a hall of fame, but just people and their, their faith, um, which is a little bit cheesy, but we're, we do that. And, um, and it starts, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things that you hope for. You're in the middle of the story, you hope for. It's the assurance in the middle of the story of what you hope for, the conviction of things that you can't see yet. And then he goes through all of these characters, Abel, uh, and Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and the Israelites, and Rahab, and Gideon, and Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel. He says, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, all these things that happened. But towards the end, it flips, and he says, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, which is hard. The puzzle they were putting together didn't come out like the picture that they thought it was going to. 
since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Like the in them wasn't complete until the through them was complete. And God was playing a long game. Even Paul's puzzle. He gets to Caesar, and we don't, we don't know what happened. So at the end of Acts, Paul's in Rome waiting. And um, so scholars say that if, and I think this is a fair assumption, that if Paul had died before Luke wrote Acts, he would have included it, but he doesn't. So that dates the writing of Acts to like really early and really soon after all this stuff happened. So it's, make, it's good history, but it leaves the story incomplete. The church fathers say that Paul did go before Caesar, and then he got acquitted, and then he went to Spain, which is what he wanted to do, but then he got rearrested, and by then the, the, the Caesar was Nero, who was crazy, and Nero cut his hat off. I'm not sure if that's the puzzle that Paul thought he was putting together. You know what I mean? Maybe he thought, I'm going to go to Caesar, preach the gospel, he's even become a Christian, and then boom, all that's, like everyone's going to become a Christian, and really that happened 300 years later when Constantine became a Christian, allegedly, and like the church in a lot of ways, flourished then. But it was then and not now. Uh, God doesn't promise to wrap it up and put a bow on it and make it look pretty the way we think of pretty. He doesn't promise to make you able to understand everything. And I think a lot of like the puzzle that he's putting together isn't circumstances or even outcomes it's relationship and it's presence. And w what he wants is the closeness to you. And that may be the puzzle that he's putting together. Uh, and there's no easy way to get that. Or there probably is an easy way, but none of us take it. <laughs> uh, I was, when I was in, one of the books I read over sabbatical was this, The Practice of the Presence of God by a guy named Brother Lawrence. Um, which is, this is the most spiritual sounding thing I did over sabbatical was read the practice of the presence of God by some guy named Brother Lawrence, you know. And I think I'd known about this book for a long time, um, but just, and maybe started it, but not been able to get through it. And I was in Wisconsin staying at a monastery, and I think I have a picture of it. This is in, this is about 15 minutes from my house, is it in there? And like, in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, it's a beautiful place, always had an allure to me. Um, you go in it, and there's a section of the sanctuary where there's a bunch of crutches that people walked up to Holy Hill with, and they left without. Like, it's crazy. And so I stayed in their guest house for a few days. And they had a, um, they had a bookstore, and so I was in the bookstore one afternoon, and I saw this. But that's it's not really why I bought it. I also saw some maple caramel corn, and like those are two of my favorite things, are maple and caramel corn. I'm like, I really want that. But I was a little self-conscious about being around all these Catholics, so I just didn't, didn't want to buy just the caramel corn, so I thought I'll buy a book with the caramel corn. I'm just being transparent. This is how it happened, you know? And the caramel corn wasn't even that good. And, but the book was. But, but I read the book, and it's surprisingly accessible. Like, it's 500 years old, but, like, it's really now. And the guy kind of got what he wanted out of the world and realized it's not that much. And so he sought after God in kind of midlife. He's probably in his 30s or 40s. And like really got the day-to-day -day walking in the presence of God. Um, 
but as I read it, this is early in sabbatical. I'm trying to like get my mind to slow down. I thought, I'm not sure. Like that sounds hard. So this is when you get to a spiritual maxims part, kind of the meat of the book. It says, here are your four guidelines of conduct for presence of God. First, we must always keep our eyes on God and his glory and all we do, say, or undertake. Um, our goal is to become perfect worshipers of God in this life as we hope to be throughout eternity. So resolve firmly to overcome by the grace of God all the difficulties found in the spiritual life. Like, oh, that's fair. I can get that. I'd rather there weren't difficulties in the spiritual life. Like the spiritual life sounds like something that should be easier than the regular life, but it's not always that way. And so like it wasn't great news, but I could see where he's coming from. Second, when we undertake the spiritual life, we must consider in depth who we are and we will find ourselves worthy of all scorn unworthy of the name of Christian and subject to all sorts of afflictions and countless misfortunes. In short, we will find ourselves among those whom God chooses to make humble through an abundance of sufferings and travails both within and without. Where'd that caramel corn go? <laughs> I, I, quote, I used to quote him more, um, but there's a, a saying that goes around that is a tr like Tim Keller, I think, popularized, but it really came from a pastor named Jack Miller. The gospel is you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but more loved than you ever dared hope. And that's what he's saying. And like the further you go with Christ, the more you realize you needed Christ a whole lot more than you thought you did. And he's really like saying, com committing to that reality. Third was we must believe beyond any doubt that it's to our advantage to sacrifice ourselves to God and that he's pleased by our sacrifice. Um... Without this submission of heart or spirit or the will, to the will of God, there can be no devotion or going to perfection. So, like, sacrifice all of it. And fourth, the soul is all the more dependent on grace as it aspires to higher perfection. And the help and assistance of God are all the more necessary to us every moment because without him, the soul can do nothing. So this is like saying the further you go with God, the more you realize you need God to go any further with God, which is counter to everything else in life. Because everything else we do at your job, the more you do it, the less help you need to do your job, right? And this is the one thing where the more you try and follow God, the more you realize that you need more God's help to help you follow God. Presence, relationship. But that's not really how we're... In our, in our sinful nature, wired. We're wired to think independence, and he's pushing us towards dependence. Um, and I got through that and realized this was a hard moment. I'm not sure I want that. And I'm the pastor. Like, this sabbatical thing is not going well at all at this point, you know? Uh, and I got there, but like only after having the time and space to work out some stuff with God, I guess about, I don't know if I call them shipwrecks, but like the hard things. I don't know what your shipwreck is. I don't know what makes you think, I don't know how we're getting out of this. And I don't really see God in it. Um. Actually, for a lot of you, I do know exactly what your shipwreck is <laughs> or what it was, you know. And I kind of flew in on a helicopter while the ship was going crazy and sat there with you for a while and then flew out to something else, like someone else's shipwreck. But we all get in those moments where we're like, this puzzle doesn't make any sense anymore, and I think we've got the wrong picture. And really, for this message, what I want 
is because the Bible says it over and over and over and over and over and over again. I keep going. And, um, I'd, and I'd say these, like in the midst of that, I'd, I'm going to say three things to do. And the first one is to pray more. Um, draw closer. Don't avoid God in the midst of that, but lean into God. Like, try and get rid of some of your distractions and move, move towards him. Uh, and so, at some point, probably a month and a half, month, month and a half into sabbatical, I started praying in a very specific way, and it was like this kind of these four things, I'm about to say, like a four-part thing that I'd pray every day, and it's been about three months now, I prayed it every day. A lot of times, walking my dog in the morning. Sometimes it takes me two minutes, sometimes it takes me two hours to pray through this. And they're almost like statements or confessions or commitments, but they end up being prayers. And the first one is this, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And that's Psalm 118. Um, I think I realized early in sabbatical, I woke up with a low-level sense of dread, and I tried to escape it immediately. And usually that was my phone. And uh, that was not healthy. And so in the midst of that, somehow, like God put this there and said, start here. This today, every day, this is the day today that the Lord has made. And when you do that, that you just start thinking of things that you have to be grateful for. And I've preached this before, like do a gratitude journal. Start your day with three things that you're grateful for, but I couldn't like keep it up myself, you know? And so I end up just thinking about all the things that I have to be thankful for. Um, my wife, my family, the ways God has met our needs, this church, like just all the things, a sunrise, I, all of it. And it's a great place to start your day. And I'm going to rejoice. Like, it calls you to joy and to be glad in the midst of whatever that is, you know. So start there. The second thing that I, that I end up praying is um, I'm going to pick up my cross today and follow Jesus. So that's what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, you got to pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus. And so I feel like God was saying, you know that low-level sense of dread? There's a reason for that. <laughs> like, you live, and this is from two weeks ago. The, the things that are thrown at us are, say, if you buy my product, life won't be hard anymore. And they know that's not true, and you'll find it out, and then you'll buy another one of their products that promise that life won't be hard anymore. Like, there's just hard stuff in life. And when your suffering comes from following Jesus and you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, there's an ultimate purpose to your sufferings as opposed to, to doing that without Christ. And so picking up your cross and following means something different for every one of us because our, our walk with Christ is different. And so I, I talked a little bit about some of this stuff, but like for me, that's, um, I've, when I went into ministry, I surrendered control over our standard of living to God, and he's blessed us abundantly, but sometimes there's our hard conversations with God about some things. I surrendered my reputation. Um, there's a lot of like surrendering your own dreams to God, and everybody does that in some way. It's unique to each of us, and whatever it is that you have to surrender, the reminder of today, I'm re-surrendering those things. Like, that's what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. Um, and realizing there's hard things that are going to come. I read a book about fear and anxiety by a guy named Ed Welch, counseling, Christian counseling guy. And out of, I ended up, he talked about God prepares you for, he gives you grace to walk into for the really hard situations. So you don't know when you get into the, the really hard, whether you're ready for it, but God knows. And he goes through scripture about this. And so I just start, I pray every day of something really hard. Like if the tragic happens today, 
God has prepared grace that is going to be available to me in the moment. And God know, he knew, he knows everything that's going to happen. He knew, and he has purpose for it. Um, and so I pray that. The third thing I pray is I'm not going to sell my soul to gain the world today. And um, so the, the world throws a bunch of bright, shiny objects at us every day, saying, low-key saying, this will change your life. I'll never forget an author named Donald Miller, um, who he was in Portland at the time, and he had some friends down from, from Vancouver, from Canada, you know, and they were, it was about doing the dishes, and they got some dish soap out, and the, and the box amazed them. They're like, what is this? He said, well, that's the dish soap. And they're like, in Canada, dish soap is a black and white box that says dish soap. And Donald Miller said, well, in America, dish soap will change your life. It's like, you get the right dish soap, people want to have sex with you in America. Like, that's how everything is advertised. Everything will change your life, you know? And so just, a, just starting my day with it won't. And so whatever the bright, shiny thing is, another car, a different car, a house, a promotion, a raise, a, a good day, month, or year in the market, a spouse, a child, like those things aren't going to change your life. When, when NC State wins the national championship early next year, this is it. This is the year. Or maybe the ACC, okay? Yeah. Settle for that. Or maybe the Atlantic or whatever. Are there still divisions? I don't even know. That will not change your life. Whatever the thing you invest your time in, you know? And I think sometimes it's a big thing. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's this. I'm just going to scroll, scroll. It's in there someplace, you know, the thing that's going to change not my life maybe but my minute. Uh, I, read, um, I read that casinos make more money from slot machines than Hollywood and Major League Baseball make combined from slot machines, one quarter at a time. And that's what's happening to us. Like we're scrolling like our hope into maybe there's something there. And um, casinos don't have clocks, so you won't realize it. And we're talking about TikTok and a certain type of phone, they found a way to block the clock, so you have no idea how long you've been scrolling. Uh, What's stealing your attention one nickel at a time? And part of that prayer is the thing that will change your life forever, the thing you have been waiting for happened 2,000 years ago. The lottery that you won happened 2,000 years ago with the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so he came from heaven to earth to show us what life was meant to be like. And read through the Gospels. And ask yourself, does his life look anything like the life that's kind of thrown advertised to us today? And it looks almost nothing like it, like what's put forward. It's just radically different. Uh, but he gave, he is the way to life. Um, his death, you know, that whole part of you're more sinful than you ever imagined, his second maxim is like you are more screwed up than you thought you were, but where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And his death takes care of the consequences of that, those parts of us that we just cannot change. He has to change it for us. And his resurrection shows us that he's overcome the consequences of sin and death, and he's given us the same spirit that raised him from the dead to begin the process of changing us.
and he's going to finish it, and he's going to come back. And that's where our hope is. And so spending some time with him in the morning, I thought, is like, it'd be like if you won the lottery and just checked on your bank account every day to feel good about it. Like, that's what reading your Bible is, because you won the lottery, and it was Jesus, and these are your winnings. And, and that's where you need to start your day. And the, the last thing that I've been praying is I'm, I'm going to place my hope in what God is doing and will do in me and in the world around me. And like, I know that's not done, but that's where I'm going to put my hope. Man, and, and praying that consistently and spending time in it has changed me over a few months. And this book makes a lot more sense to me now than it did then. So that's the big thing I want to say is pray more. And you, you might have to find your own rhythm for praying and what it is but pray more. Here, and the, the last two are short. Find someone to share your burden that you can really be honest with about the shipwreck that you're in. Um, whenever people are going through stuff, I always ask you guys, who are you talking to? Always. Because I know how much it matters. And if you're only talking to yourself, that's a bad idea. Because you're just not that smart. And it's going to get toxic in there if you're just kind of rolling around with yourself. And if you're talking to the wrong people, you know, if you're talking to people that just are telling you to chase your dreams and you're great and, like, aren't going to preach the gospel to you in the midst of that and, and the good and the bad of it and the hope that comes with it, then you're talking to the wrong people. You need people that get the gospel and are going to preach it to you and, and be with you in the midst of it. And so Ken talked about home groups, and we've been just talking a lot about that. And this week, even, I, I was talking to, I forget who I was talking to, um, about presence and groups and just community and relationship, and thought a home group's text thread might be, at this point, another, a new metric of, like, how well they're doing. Like, how well are we sharing the things that are really going on in our lives? So find your people, and then whatever the next step that God's put in front of you, take the next step that God's put in front of you whatever it is. You don't need to know all the steps. You just need to know um, the next step. And when I, was on, when I was on sabbatical, I did. It was like, God, if you want me to do something else, like, I don't know. Just tell me. And there's only two times I thought maybe, maybe there was something else. So one was we were in Portugal, and we're having dinner with Eddie, Kendall's pastor, Kendall and Lisa's pastor. And he said, you're going to go to that monastery, and God's going to say, Portugal, Portugal, Portugal. I'm like, oh, you guys are great. <laughs> Portugal's pretty great. That would have been logistically difficult, but God didn't say that. The other time was when I read about the pilot shortage, and United has a pilot school in Arizona where you can get your commercial pilot's license in six months. I'm like, that would be fun. But God didn't say that either. If God said anything, and he did, if he did, he didn't say this as clearly as he said some things to me over time. He just said, finish what you started. Like, let's go. Um, and I don't know what the next step is for you. But I just want to challenge you and encourage you uh, to take it. That puzzle, I'll finish with this. The band can come back up. We're going to take communion. The puzzle analogy. You ever finished a puzzle and you're missing a piece? We finished a puzzle a couple years ago. It's probably a thousand-piece puzzle, and we were missing a piece. And it was horrible. Uh, we, figured, we figured out that the puzzle had come from my mom. We'd done the puzzle at my mom's house in Wisconsin, and she had like a heavy pile of carpet downstairs where we did it, and so we must have just lost the piece, and it's probably still there. 
Um, but like we just couldn't do it. So we ordered it off of eBay. We it's out of production. We found it. And I swear we found one that was missing the exact same piece. And so we found another one. And we put that piece in there. And it was done. Right? Like that's how compulsive I can get about this stuff. But that's how we are about life. You ever get to the end of a puzzle and you're doing it with somebody and you've got like six pieces left? And you're figuring out, if I put this one in, and they put this one in, and then I put this one in, you want the last piece? You know what I'm talking about? No one? Okay, shoot. You're getting nervous there. God's got the last piece. He's got all the pieces. A big part of the reason that I'll put a puzzle out is kind of I want to spend some time with my family. And I, I don't know if God wired it this way, but God wants you. He didn't want a pretty picture in a puzzle. He wants you. He loves you. He sent his son to redeem you. He likes you. And he wants to hang out with you. And what he wants is presence with you. And that's the win. That's the win. The presence of God. That's the win. Uh, Father, thanks for Paul and his faith and just an amazing, amazing story, God, and that he went through all the things that he went through just with the confidence that you were going to finish the story. And I pray that whatever it is that we're going through, and I know they are hard, hard, hard things going on in this church, Lord. And it's hard to say this. As I sit with people in their situations, I can't see it either. How a puzzle comes together out of this that looks like the right thing, Lord. But you say over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture that it will. And above all things, the resurrection of Jesus tells us that it will. No one, when he was on the cross, thought this is going to work out well but you were accomplishing your purposes through it, God. And you are a good God, and you love us, and help us never to forget that, Lord. I love you. I pray that you would help us um, to, to seek you more, to pray to you more, um, to be with each other in the midst of the storm, and to take the next step, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.